All right, welcome back to Art Holes, everybody. My name is Michael Anthony, a.k.a. alleged testicular poet and international man of mystery, Greg Rodolanti, and this is the podcast about art and art history with someone who is thrilled to be getting out of 1600s Italy. This has been such an unbelievably weird and fantastic story, but it's time to move on. We have other artists to explore and mostly useless knowledge to gain. I do have a couple thoughts on the next artist in series, but I'll save that for the end. Right now, we have a story to finish. So Caravaggio escaped a heavily garrisoned prison, and the brother of the Order of St. John who found the cell, the 11-foot underground featureless rock wall cell empty, that's a really awkward thing to need to tell your boss. And I feel like Don't Shoot the Messenger was a concept they hadn't really figured out yet, especially given Blame the Jews was still something that they were applying to almost everything. I also don't imagine that Wignacor was the type of grand master, or person for that matter, who took bad news with understanding and aplomb. We don't know the details of when the escape happened, mostly because it's a secret prison break and nobody was going to admit being involved. But let's talk about the logistics of what would have needed to have happened for Caravaggio to successfully escape and get off the island. First, and probably most obviously, it had to be late at night when most of the knights would have been asleep, otherwise Caravaggio would have been immediately discovered. He would have had to have found a way to climb the 11-foot stone walls of the Guva, get the heavy door open, and then make his way to the ramparts, the, the interior castle walls. He then would have to climb his way up the interior side of the ramparts of Castle San Angelo, a substantial substantial military fort, and then find a way to lower himself down the 200-foot sheer face of the walls to the open sea. And if you look at pictures of Sant'Angelo online, you can see it's sort of stuck at the end of a peninsula. That meant that Caravaggio would have had to swim to a more remote section because he couldn't just hop on a boat in the middle of a busy harbor. He then would have had to have gotten on a boat with a captain who was cool with assisting a prison escape and sail away from Malta. And you can't do almost any of that on your own. So I don't think it's a controversial statement to say that there's no way he escaped without help. I mean, there was nothing for him to escape with. He was imprisoned 11 feet underground with what? Max a bucket for a toilet and maybe a bowl for water? Ideally kept as far away from each other as possible to avoid late night mistakes, but somebody helped him. And even Giovanni Baglione, Johnny Testicle himself, mentioned in that early biography that a rope ladder was used in the escape, which adds to the evidence. But there's no real evidence as to who helped Caravaggio escape. But I'm gonna venture a guess. I think it was Fabrizio Sforza Colonna. Which is, admittedly, the real obvious guess. I mean, he's the only one with a vested interest in the trial not happening in Caravaggio finding freedom. Fabrizio and Costanza were the ones who put their necks in the line and vouched for Caravaggio with the knights. I think that if things played out, Caravaggio's trial, that whole thing, it would reflect poorly on them, and it could have had an impact on Fabrizio's standing within the order and the family standing generally. Whoever helped also needed the clout to secure a boat with a captain willing to risk his life because this was a dangerous mission. Getting caught would have been a disaster for whoever helped. Fabrizio was also in the position to fully understand how the order would deal with an escaped prisoner such as Caravaggio. And this gets interesting. The Order of St. John was peaking in its recruitment power and its general prestige. And from a messaging standpoint, it's not a good look when people are risking death to get the hell out. People may start to ask if it's worth committing their entire lives to an organization that may have some hidden problems. 
So the Order's just as interested in getting Caravaggio back silently as it is quickly. They need to track him down and bring him back for justice before he can receive a papal pardon. Caravaggio, on the other hand, had to try and get that papal pardon before word spread about what happened on Malta or the Knights tracked him down. He's now working with two ticking clocks. He's now alone, being hunted by the most dangerous order of knights in Europe. He's isolated from the Colonas, at least outwardly for right now. If he escaped Malta and then went right to Costanza Colonna, that would be an incredibly bad look. People were pretty stupid back then, but they weren't that stupid and could reasonably follow the evidence to figure out who orchestrated his escape. He can't go back to Rome, and he's at risk in any city where there's a prior, those regional ambassadors for the Order of St. John, and you never knew when a Maltese ship would just show up in a port looking for supplies or potential recruits, and all of the knights abroad were on the lookout. Caravaggio has pushed away every single person who was willing to help him, his connections with the powerful and the elite, and he has burned every bridge. But sometimes there are people in your life, people who, no matter how often you screw up, just bad decision after bad decision, causing yourself and others pain and heartache, when you can't get out of your own way, you're aggressively drawing penises on a wee baby Jesus and hitting people in the head with a hatchet. Sometimes there's that one person who, God, despite what's in their own best interests, will still love you and look out for you even though they probably shouldn't because it's not good for them. These are the people who see the best in us, even when we ourselves may not or cannot, and give you hope and make you want to turn into the person that they know you are. They're the loved ones who you can trust to make sure that if you hit rock bottom, there's at least a glimmer of hope for a way out. They're the people who make all of this, whatever this is and however long it lasts, worth it. And sometimes, sometimes, they also have luscious, luscious figs. So if you have a Mario Minetti in your life, give that person a hug, say you love their figs, which I mean at this point really it's much more of a broad metaphor, and apologize to your Mario for all the things you said or did that weren't the right call. And hopefully it's on a lesser scale than what we're talking about here. With nowhere left to turn, Caravaggio went to maybe the one person he thought might be willing to hide him and help him with a plan. By October of 1608, after he escaped from prison on an island on the most important front in the cultural and territorial battles of the Middle East and Europe, Caravaggio managed to get to the city of Syracuse on the island of Sicily to see his Mario. He's also now back in Spanish sovereign territory. He's not in Malta or in the Papal States, so let's not undervalue the political and legal flexibility that's happening here, too. But that still doesn't detract from the fact that whatever moves are left in this chess game of debauchery, historically great art, European power brokering, Colonas and Borghese's, the French and Spanish jockeying for power, the wee baby Jesus and his kingdom on earth, that's all great. But the next move, the future of this story right now, it boils down to a reunion between Michelangelo Mauricio de Caravaggio and Mario Minitti. Wow! And Mario has had an interesting go of things since he had to get married and break away from Caravaggio. He is no longer the flush-faced, doe-eyed young man that we left. We know from first meeting Mario many episodes ago that he was originally from Syracuse, but was forced out of the city for some reason and went to Rome, which of course is where he met Caravaggio at Siciliano's studio. 
When things got too crazy with Caravaggio in Rome, Mario decided he wanted to go back to Syracuse and be an artist and show everyone back home his, quote, happy, pleasurable, and soft style of painting. That sounds Bob Rossi and delightful. Good call. As soon as Mario got back to Sicily, he almost immediately had to take refuge in a Carmelite monastery, quote, for a homicide casually committed, unquote. Oh, no! Yep. Mario killed a guy, too. When I read that, I was super bummed out. I didn't want that for Mario, let alone the person he murdered. But then I remembered that everybody was a train wreck back then, especially painters. There's a theory that so many artists were violent assholes because they used lead to make white paint. So all these artists were getting lead poisoning, which can cause violent outbursts, and they would drink to help curb the symptoms of lead poisoning, but the alcohol only made things worse. They called it painter's colic, and I have no idea if that's a viable theory as I am also not a doctor, but maybe it played a part and it certainly makes sense. While he was in hiding, Mario begged the family of the guy he killed for forgiveness, which they did not give because I'm sorry doesn't wash away murder, especially a murder casually committed, which just reeks of laziness and apathy. It sounds like Mario asked the guy to walk into his sword so he didn't have to move his arm. If I'm going to get murdered, and that's not an invitation, I kind of want it to be at least somewhat of a momentous occurrence in at least that person's life. But the family eventually relented once the city's authorities stepped in. The government of Syracuse was excited to have a painter from Rome, a hometown boy that came back. It's a great story and the church can get art. This is fantastic. So the murder was forgiven. It didn't take long for Mario to get bored and restless with this new life. And soon after, he would leave his wife and family and travel to Messina for a while, which was on the northeast coast of Sicily, right near where the ball meets the foot. And these getaways became an annual tradition. Each summer, he would leave for Syracuse and go to Messina. He had a studio with 12 young assistants who were always there, and there were a ton of commissions available. Small churches were popping up everywhere, and there was always somebody who needed something. Mario became a commercially successful artist and was famous in Sicily, but he wasn't groundbreaking. Oh, come on! Usually his students would do most of the work, and then he'd come in at the very end for the finishing touches. Mario was a fantastic delegator. Critics would say that if he spent more time actually working on fewer pieces, he could have been as great as Caravaggio. But at what cost? Mario had a great life, he's summering with the boys, and he's making a ton of money. He wasn't going to be a world burner, but he had status and loved flaunting his wealth by wearing, quote, close-fitting and showy clothes. And you can really almost picture it. Just think of how nice this story would have been if it was just about two nice young men named Michael and Mario who both moved to the city right out of art school and they meet at their very first job. One thing leads to another and they get an apartment together. They both end up being successful and wear matching leather rope bracelets with those silver clasps and they throw a bunch of dinner parties and nobody gets murdered. But then we don't have the art. And if Caravaggio led even somewhat normal of a life, I don't think we'd be talking about his paintings at all. But it's not what happened. And now Mario's peaceful life with the tight and flashy outfits, it's going to be massively interrupted. 
when Caravaggio showed up at Mario's door in the middle of October of 1608, just a chewy morsel of a moment in history and a conversation that I would love to time machine to witness. Just to see them both standing there after the way they ended things, it was just too hard, the, the relationship. And they haven't seen each other in years. And Caravaggio obviously going to be very dirty and probably smell bad. And Mario, he's just leaning against the inside of a doorway. His arms are folded, just staring. And Caravaggio doesn't know what to do with his hands, and he's just being all awkward and can't maintain eye contact. And then he finally makes his move. Hey, I, um, I really miss you, you know? I know, I, I know, I know, it's not fair. And don't worry, I'm not here to try to win you back. So, I like the, the Titan flashy, the, you look great. I, like, you know I'm not good at this. I'm not exactly making things easier, but I get it. And also, I just want to say, and, and I know you don't need my approval, but I, I just want to say that I, I understand why you did what you did, and I just want you to be happy, and I hope she makes you happy. And I, um, I stopped stabbing people, mostly. And I know, I, like, I know, I know, I know. It's a little too late to tell you that, just... Look, things with Honorio and Orazio and those guys, it just got out of hand so quickly. And I, I wasn't my best self for you, but also I wasn't my best self for me. And I know you came down to live the good life, and I'm not trying to upend that. I just, I want my version of that too. Being a knight, all that celebrity church artist stuff, none of it matters. Because I'm also just a painter, standing in front of another painter, asking him to love me. And really, more than that, also need your help really badly. I got a guy shot with a pirate gun, and he's probably still pretty mad about that one. And I tried to castrate Renuccio Tomasoni while we played a fake tennis match. I, I know, I know, I'll explain later, but then he died, and things got kind of squirrely after you left. And I, I'm not, I'm not afraid to say that. I'm just going to tell you, I need you right now. And then when Caravaggio eventually found out that Mario was also a murderer, this is, this is oddly romantic. So they both probably said their piece, and maybe there was an airing of the grievances. Why'd you leave me? Why couldn't you stop stabbing people? I said it would eventually push me away and you kept stabbing. What did you expect me to do? At some point I have to look out for myself. And the result of that conversation, whether or not it happened as dramatically as all the stuff I just made up, according to a manuscript from 1724 that consolidated a bunch of histories called The Lives of the Messinese Painters, Caravaggio was, quote, Welcomed by his friend and colleague in the study of painting, Mario Manitti, a painter from Syracuse, from whom he received all the kindness that such a gentleman could extend him. Nice, but this was still the most dangerous time for Caravaggio. The Order of St. John would make their greatest effort to track down a runaway knight prior to the Pravadio Habitus Ceremony, which is the defrocking ceremony. Once that happened and was put into the records, it was real and the story was set. If they brought him back before the ceremony, they'd be in a better position to control how the history was recorded. So the knights were actively searching for Caravaggio. Word was sent to the priors, the order's representatives in major cities, and they kept a pretty consistent presence in Syracuse. By November 27, 1608, the order hadn't found Caravaggio yet, so they held his trial in absentia, where he was found guilty of escaping prison and his sentence was expulsion from the order. 
The original crime, the attack on Rodamonte Roero, who ended up getting shot? It didn't even matter. Caravaggio violated Statute 13, the more important crime to prosecute, and that was that. On December 1st, 1608, Caravaggio's Pravadio Hobitis occurred. In the church where he was knighted, that was full of the most senior and respected knights of the time. Martinelli, Fabrizio, Wignacor, underneath the only painting of his that Caravaggio had ever signed. From the Order's Archive of Records, quote, a general assembly was summoned of the venerable bailiffs, the priors, the preceptors, and the brothers in the church and oratory of St. John, our patron. At the sound of the bell, according to the ancient and praiseworthy custom of the Holy Order of St. John of Jerusalem, the information inspected and carefully read out against Michelangelo Maurizio de Caravaggio. Unquote. That is the nerdiest shit ever. That is Dungeons and Dragons and LARPing, but with God and everybody was probably very dour and serious. And the order presented in the oratory of the church, the case for Caravaggio's expulsion, and per Maltese law, he was given the opportunity for rebuttal. However, since Caravaggio never responded to the order's demands to appear, which is not a shocker, he's habitually missed court appearances and he for sure wasn't gonna show up to this one. Per custom, the order took a knight's habit, the drapey uniform thing, of a knight of magisterial obedience and laid it over the stool as a symbolic gesture because they're all a bunch of nerds. And right underneath a painting of St. John that Caravaggio just created for them, the only painting this idiot ever put his name on, and the stool would have been placed almost directly underneath the signature, just imagine what that must have looked like. The empty uniform laid out over the stool, a room lit and warmed by flame, and a bunch of grown men wearing matching outfits. Wienacor's voice is reverberating throughout the vaulted ceilings. It's all very melodramatic. When Caravaggio failed to respond to the order's charges, he was stripped of his habit and was expelled. The expulsion was then recorded in the order's records. Quote, The said brother Michelangelo de Caravaggio was, in the public assembly, by the hands of the Reverend Lord President, sweet title, deprived of his habit and expelled and thrust forth like a rotten and diseased limb from our order and society. Domino, motherfuckers. Say about that. It's official. He is out of the order. It is done. There was now no urgency to bring Caravaggio back because the Pravadio Habitus was over. But that doesn't mean they would necessarily stop looking for him because the order does not forget. Back in Syracuse, Mario was using his connections with the city's powerful and elite to convince the Senate to find some sort of commission for Caravaggio. And since this was Spanish territory, if Caravaggio were under the Senate's protection, anybody attempting to go after him, the Spiri, the Nuccia's family, or the Knights of Malta, they would be out of their jurisdiction, and it would be making a huge power play against Spain. This gets back to that weird dynamic and tension between the church and secular powers. Those forces are 100% at play right now. Mario wrote to the Senate and asked that Caravaggio be allowed to stay and work in Syracuse. Quote, so that he could have the chance to enjoy his friend for some time and be able to evaluate the greatness of Michelangelo. Nice. And while I'm sure they evaluated each other quite a bit, it wasn't all enjoyment and fun reunion times, and not just for Mario's wife, who was probably thrilled with the arrangements. The Maltese Knights had ships all over the ports of Syracuse, and Caravaggio was a nervous wreck. He would go to bed fully dressed and always slept armed with at least a dagger. 
It was also around this time that Caravaggio got a dog, presumably to calm his nerves. It was a black dog named Corvo, which meant crow, and Caravaggio loved Corvo and taught him a bunch of tricks. If he had just gotten a dog way earlier, again, I doubt much of the story would have happened. The timing of Caravaggio's arrival was perfect. The Senate and the church in Syracuse were getting along at this moment, and apparently that wasn't a given in Syracuse. So there were a bunch of altarpiece opportunities from churches and monasteries that were being renovated. To take advantage of his being in the city, Caravaggio was given the most sought-after commission in Syracuse, the altarpiece for the Santa Lucia al Sepulcro, which was a medieval basilica that was dedicated to St. Lucy. St. Lucy was a martyr that was from Syracuse. She was the equivalent of how the order felt about St. John the Baptist. This was a period of time when they were called cults, really. People would have an extreme dedication to a specific saint in particular. And I'm sure the church would disagree with this characterization, but they were almost treated like demigods. And the cult of St. Lucy was strong in Syracuse. She's the hometown favorite. The story of St. Lucy's martyrdom, which occurred in the year 304 AD, uh, this one's a rough one once you realize the subtext and can guess what actually happened once you take away all the magical stuff. Lucy, also called Lucia, was born in the year 283 into a noble family in Syracuse. She was a virgin, they made sure to record that part, and at a young age, committed to living a life of poverty and humility like Jesus. Lucy gave away all of her possessions to the poor, and she swore a vow of chastity, and that particular vow was a problem for her future husband who didn't believe in Jesus at all. The future husband thought the vow of chastity was just a convenient excuse and was convinced that Lucy was giving her money to another guy to get him to marry her, so he accused Lucy of being unfaithful. And that's, that's a pretty timeless guy move right there. We've been pulling that one for quite a while. What's not timeless, thank God, is what happened next. Her husband-to-be condemned Lucy and gave her over to a Roman judge named Pascasius for being a Christian. This was in 304, and that Edict of Tolerance wasn't passed in Rome until 311, so the Romans were still in that let's-feed-Christians-to-wild-dogs phase. As punishment for being an admitted Christian, Pascasius turned Lucy over to, quote, ribalds of the town to defoul her and labor her so much until she be dead, unquote. But when the ribalds came to take Lucy to the brothel to don't make me say it again, there was a miracle and they couldn't move her. Many men couldn't budge her an inch, even when they hooked up oxen to Lucy to pull her like a plow. She was totally immovable. So Piscasius, he got pissed and told the Ribbles to forget it. And if Lucy wasn't going to move slash be dragged and just go freely with them to, I don't want to say it again, like she was supposed to, they were to instead light a fire around her and pour boiling hot oil and resin on her, which they did. Later versions of the story would say the Romans also pulled out her eyes, which is why Lucy is the patron saint of blindness. And while she was being tortured, Lucy was stoic and didn't scream and cry at all. Apparently she was cool with everything and was just calmly praying to God, which made the Romans furious. So one of them took a sword and stabbed Lucy through the throat. And even then, just, I mean, she's been tortured beyond belief and someone stabbed her in the throat. And is anybody listening to this at work? I'm really sorry about this one. But even then, Lucy wouldn't allow herself to die until a priest came and gave her the sacrament, the body of Christ. And only after the sacrament was given, Lucy, quote, 
rendered up and gave her soul to God, thanking and praising him of all his goodness. This is a delightful religion. Lucy was said to have then been buried in the catacombs of the Santa Lucia al Sepulcro, the place where Caravaggio was to paint his altarpiece. I think it's safe to say that some of the stuff happened to Lucy and some of it didn't, and some of the stuff was maybe added after to put a nice spin in the story. But what do I know? But don't worry, the story gets even worse. Because during the Middle Ages, a group of people broke into Lucy's tomb and stole her bones. So that's good. Let's really let this poor woman have absolutely no peace. And there began to be this competition to be the place that claimed Lucy's remains. Because that would become the, the default cult center and where people would flock to visit Lucy. Isn't this great and not disturbing at all? Syracuse wasn't the only city to develop a cult of St. Lucy. There was also one that sprung up in Venice, who was vying to be the spot for all the Lucy devotees. It's a, it's a rival cult. But with Caravaggio's altarpiece, the church leadership in Syracuse wanted to remind people this is where St. Lucy was martyred, the miracle of surviving until she could receive the sacrament, and also where she was originally buried. This, it's all in the marketing. Caravaggio, of course, delivered for the city of Syracuse, and he painted the burial of St. Lucy, and he likely completed this altarpiece in Mario's studio. And one of the authors described it as having a dreamlike quality. The scene is Lucy immediately after she received the sacrament and died. With mourners in the background, Lucy looks frail, especially when compared to the two men in the foreground digging the hole in which she was buried. Even them just digging the hole, the idea of being disregarded by Romans in death, it was, it was powerful. And the disproportions of the men in front compared to Lucy, their extra muscles, their, they look bulky, and it focuses the viewer on the brutality of what she went through. And then you can also see the stab wound in her neck. There are no angels, no bright lights in the sky taking Lucy to heaven. It is dark and powerful stuff. It was one of Caravaggio's largest altarpieces, and he completed it in just over a month. And that's something that I might not have put enough emphasis on during this story, is just how fast Caravaggio completed paintings. Centuries later, when his paintings were x-rayed, there were no signs of drawings or prep work. He wouldn't map out a painting for scale or to see where stuff would go. He just started and then spit out a masterpiece, got drunk and stabbed a guy, and then would just do another one. The burial of St. Lucy was completed in early December 1608, with a plan to unveil it on December 13th, the Santa Lucia feast day. When it was eventually unveiled, people right away recognized it as a masterpiece, and it quickly became a famous painting, and close copies began to pop up all over Italy. But Caravaggio wasn't there on December 13th to see the unveiling and relish in his success. As soon as the painting was completed and Caravaggio received his payment, he knew he had to leave. There was no value in staying. He needed to rebuild his brand to remind the church that he was worth a pardon. Syracuse got their painting. Now it was time to move to another city and be awesome there. Plus, the city of Syracuse, it was swarming with Maltese knights, and Caravaggio knew they would still be looking for him. Not as aggressively, but there was one particular knight who left Malta soon after the escape to track him down and make sure a debt was paid. Feeling hunted and unsafe, Caravaggio needed to leave. He still can't stay put yet, not anywhere. He's gotta move. And like he had to move south when fleeing Rome, Caravaggio needed to move north now, away from Malta. And he's really narrowing down his options. 
But maybe this was more than just moving north to be away from Malta. Maybe this was about moving away from the greater pain and angst if he stayed. Better to have loved and lost than never loved at all? Easy for you to say, you've never met a Mario Minetti. If Mario was going to be the one person who would never let Caravaggio fall, even after he kept doing things that drove them apart, mostly the stabbing stuff, it was really just the incessant stabbing that Mario couldn't handle, Caravaggio had to do the right thing and think about what was best for Mario too. And in the same entryway door to Mario's home where they likely had their reunion, they said their final goodbyes. And it really is goodbye this time. Michelangelo and Mario will never see each other again. It either happened in that dramatic Hallmark movie version, or Caravaggio just didn't want to spend the rest of his life in a Maltese basement prison trying not to 3am poop in his own water bowl. Either way, it was time to go. Overall, no matter what, needing to leave Syracuse was for sure about desperately trying to get Scipione Borghese to secure a pardon before the Maltese battle monks dragged him back to prison, but this also had to have been a tough moment. The fact that historians could even identify a relationship between these two human beings through the fragments of time and shitty record-keeping, and also a time when the punishment for that type of relationship was decapitation, it's just cool that these two knowingly winked their way through history and paintings. So there was some sort of goodbye. The trail of evidence picks back up on December 6, 1608, and by that point Caravaggio had made his way to the city of Messina. Messina was a city of around 100,000 people, similar to the size of Rome, and not much has changed as far as how much danger he was in. Because not only did Caravaggio find that Messina was swarming with Maltese knights, but Antonio Martelli, one of the senior knights of the order who just had his portrait painted by Caravaggio, he moved to Messina in November to become the city's prior. That's just bad luck right there. And once the rumors reached Martelli that Caravaggio was also in Messina, word would have been sent back to Wignacourt immediately. But things were good at first, and the Senate of Messina welcomed Caravaggio and secured him a commission with a rich merchant named Giovanni Battista de Lazari. And this is like the twelfth person named Giovanni Battista in this series. The commission was for the new church of the Padre Cochaferi for 1,000 scudi. It was a significant fee. This was a supply-and-demand situation. The church really wanted a Caravaggio painting, and they requested a painting that would be titled The Madonna, St. John the Baptist, and Other Saints. But Caravaggio thought that was a stupid idea, and he didn't want to paint that. So he suggested a story of Jesus resurrecting Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus, of course, was a nod to Lazari's name, the guy who commissioned the painting, and also maybe a metaphor for what he was asking the church to do for him with a pardon, to functionally bring him back from the dead, placing the Pope in the role of Jesus. This was very strategic and multi-layered ass-kissing. So Lazarus, a uh, pretty famous story, Jesus brings Lazarus back from the dead, it's a miracle, but even the topic itself was setting Caravaggio up for success. Lazarus's resurrection hadn't really been painted that often since the earliest parts of the Renaissance. And his version, it's a very lowly lit scene, as if it's only illuminated by a torch or two, and Jesus is on the left in the crowd, and it's such a dark painting that it's almost hard to identify him, and he's summoning Lazarus back from the dead as people are struggling to hold up the body. And Lazarus himself, he's almost mid-resurrection, like he's in this weird limbo between the living and the dead, and it's a gorgeous painting. It's unique, and it was painted quickly, because he's gotta go, he's gotta keep working, he's got a pardon to try and win. 
He was also commissioned by the Capuchin Franciscans, which was some weird offshoot of that order, to paint a nativity scene for the Church of Santa Maria degli Angeli. This painting was completed in early-ish 1609, definitely before the summer of 1609, because he does a thing that we'll get to in a few minutes. And the painting is called Adoration of the Shepherds, and it's considered to be one of Caravaggio's most emotionally complex paintings. Most nativity scenes are celebratory. There's the wee baby Jesus. He sometimes has his arms open and people are praying to him. And Mary's oddly all put together, even though she just gave birth. And the three wise men and Joseph and everybody's focused on the God baby. But that's not really happening here. In his version, Mary looks exhausted. She's lying on the ground, having just given birth, and she can barely prop herself up. And Joseph and the three wise men, they're all far off to the side, almost like they're afraid to get close, like they'll mess something up, and they're looking concerned, as if they want to help but don't know how. This image is a powerful and emotionally aware and empathetic appreciation for the bond between a mother and child, a bond that men have trouble grasping but know enough to recognize it's there. It's almost like Caravaggio has had trouble with father figures his entire life and has been mommied well into his 30s. It was a brilliant painting, and the Capuchin Franciscans loved it. Another masterpiece in the books. He is churning out masterpiece paintings and an absurd clip. If another artist completed one of these paintings, it would be considered a successful career. It's almost easy to get numb to how much brilliance was being produced at such a fast pace. But it was time to move on. Until a pardon went through, he would always have to keep moving. He's still being tracked by the Order of St. John, still on the hook for the Nuccia's murder, and on top of that, there was the Don Carlo Pepe incident, which is not the name of a German New Wave synth-pop band from the 80s, but it should be. No, Don Carlo Pepe was a teacher at an all-boys grammar school in Messina. Caravaggio would follow Don Carlo Pepe and his students as they took their outdoor recreation time in the arsenal where the galley ships were built to, quote, observe the positions of those playful boys and to form his inventions. He was checking out young boys at a playground. It's really, it's really, that's, that's what that boils down to. And Don Carlo Pepe soon took notice that this weird gremlin man was checking out the kids during recess. So we walked up to Caravaggio and asked him why he was always around. This might be the first reasonable thing anybody's done in this story. Hey man, can I help you? Is for sure the question you should ask right there. In Caravaggio, he was so furious and resentful at the implication, the audacity, how dare you, sir, how dare you, that he whacked Don Carlo Pepe over the head with some sort of weapon and busted his head open. So, yeah, it's officially time to leave Messina, now that he's being forced out for attacking Don Carlo Pepe and doing some boy creeping. You ever been in a cockpit before? No, sir, I've never been up in a plane before. You ever seen a grown man naked? He left Messina for Palermo in the summer of 1609, but nobody knows why Palermo. And while he was there, he painted another version of the Adoration, so it's likely he went just for the commission. He's building his cash reserves so he can be mobile. This version of the Adoration has an angel, and it's a little more traditional, but still with the exhausted Mary on the floor and St. Francis is there. But nobody knows where this painting is because it was stolen by a Sicilian mafia boss in 1969. 
Caravaggio didn't last too long in Palermo, just a few months. In Johnny Testicle's early biography, he said that Caravaggio no longer felt safe in Sicily generally because, quote, his enemy was chasing him. So no longer safe in the entire island of Sicily, Caravaggio made his way back to Naples by the middle of September of 1609. And this could be good. It's a city he's familiar with. He has a reputation with the church there. It's closer to Rome, and most importantly, it's farther away from Malta. And also, the Colonas are there. Still, even after he screwed Costanza over when she helped him evade capture for murder, when she put her son's, hers, and her family's reputation on the line and he screwed the whole thing up, she's still gonna help him. When he arrived in Naples for the second time, Caravaggio again stayed at the Colonna Palace in Chiaia under their full protection. Swaddled like a baby, a giant, bearded, drunken, angry baby who stabs. By the autumn of 1609, something happened. There was a turn of the tide, and there was something that Caravaggio hadn't had in a long time. Hope. He'd not only been welcomed back into the protection of the Colonas, but there was word that Wignacore had cooled down a bit, and he wasn't as intent on bringing Caravaggio back to Malta. And there was also word that discussion had restarted in the Vatican, and that negotiations were taking place that would result in a papal pardon. This is another one of those critical junctures in the story where he just needs to, he just needs to not do anything stupid. In October of 1609, mid to late October sometime, Caravaggio decided he wanted a night out on the town. And why not? Well, besides the whole keeping a low profile thing, but I mean, come on, you know he's pathologically incapable of doing that. Besides that, why not? He's overcome all odds of his own idiocy and bad decision-making. The papal pardon was a real possibility now, especially after he fire-hosed Europe with a bunch of masterpiece paintings. He outplayed Wignacore. This is the most positive future he's been able to imagine in a long time. So it's time to go out and celebrate. And if you're Caravaggio, there is only one place you're going to go to if you're in Naples in 1610. The Studio 54 of its day, the Osteria del Ceriglio. The Ceriglio was tucked in an alleyway behind the Santa Maria La Nova Church, and it was the most famous tavern in Naples and was well-known throughout Europe. Not a great place to keep a low profile. At all. It was a tavern that was known to serve more red wine than water, and not in that water was dangerous to drink so we might as well drink wine kind of way. No, the Ceriglio was known for everyone being red wine hammered all the time. The kind of drunk where your teeth are all purple and you say things like, no, that's not what I meant. And you start talking with your hands even though the glass of wine that's in your hand is full and it starts to swirl and spill over the edge and you're hiccuping and it's that kind of red wine consumption. It was also a very celebrated brothel, known throughout Europe for its, quote, huge orgies. And the special for the evening that was always on the menu? Giant gay orgies, piles and piles of the fellas. Female escorts were there, sometimes, but according to a poet at the time, Giambattista Basile, who actually wrote the earliest European versions of Rapunzel and Cinderella that influenced the Brothers Grimm, his comments on women's role in the Seriglio, quote, Venus is shunned. It was an establishment that really did hold a special place in history, especially for that time and place. Men could just go and do their thing and not worry about any judgment, and they even had a separate door if you wanted to go in secretly. 
It was a true Bacchanalian affair. Just wine and sex and no commitment or pretense. And I'm sure Caravaggio had an absolute blast. And you know what? He had to go. He had to see this place. I get it. It's like going to Orlando and not going to Disney. It's human nature. No matter how much of an asshole you are, when you're stressed and overworked, you just need a night to yourself. Well, yourself and a, a bunch of lithe Napolitano boys just feeding you grapes and various cheeses and laughing at all your dad jokes, and I'm sure it was great. When he was, you know, finished with his evening, it was time to leave and go back to the Colonna Palace. He is a new man with a new outlook and really a new future. Caravaggio walked out of the Seriglio, and in the alleyway were four men. Men who weren't there for the same reason as Caravaggio, but each stood there with an eight-pointed star emblazoned on his chest. The Knights of St. John had tracked down Caravaggio. Wignacore may have cooled in extraditing Caravaggio back to Malta, but this wasn't about Wignacore and it wasn't about Statute 13. And the men attacked at once, and three of them held him on the ground as one of the knights stood over a struggling Caravaggio. And it wasn't just any knight. Standing over Caravaggio was Giovanni Rodamonte Roero, the knight of justice that Caravaggio and the other knights attacked and who ended up getting shot with a pirate gun. Roero tracked Caravaggio all the way to Naples, but not to bring him back. The order didn't need to bring him back, nor did it necessarily want to. This was personal. Caravaggio had not only physically attacked Roero, a senior knight, someone who could trace his fancy lineage back 200 years, but Caravaggio had also attacked Rodamonte Roero's honor and reputation. Like Valide Melandroni's threat of revenge against Prudenza for the perceived slight of her sleeping with a nooch, there was a known punishment for this offense. Roero took out a blade, touched it to Caravaggio's face, pressed down hard, and slid the blade across Caravaggio's entire face, like a hot knife through overtaxed butter, giving him a massive sfregio, a revenge facial scarring. And Roero sliced open Caravaggio's face so badly that it was said that he was almost unrecognizable. The Sfregia was such a horrible injury that on October 24, 1609, a Roman newspaper reported that word had been sent from Naples that Caravaggio was murdered. He wasn't dead, but he was seriously messed up. The wound was savage, and there's substantial evidence that we'll discuss in a bit that Roero may have partially blinded him as well. By Christmas Day of 1609, letters out of Naples showed that Caravaggio was still recovering in the Colonna Palace. He's not in good shape, and he was laid up until around May of 1610. And dates and chronology and series of events, they get even fuzzier here and harder to parse out. But we do know that between May of 1610 and June of 1610, Caravaggio finished two paintings, The Martyrdom of St. Ursula and The Denial of St. Peter. And the stories behind these paintings, and the subject's role in the Bible, who the paintings were for, it's the same kind of stuff we've been talking about forever. And total transparency here, I, I really couldn't handle another St. Lucie-esque story. Plus, really, the key aspect of these two paintings are the drastic change in quality. These two paintings, The Martyrdom of St. Ursula and Denial of St. Peter, they're the two paintings known to have been painted after Caravaggio was Fregiato. People who know way more about this stuff than I do can identify a significant change in his brushwork at this point. The subject's forms aren't as consistent, and it's just a little sloppier. 
And that last part, the sloppiness, I can kind of tell that more broadly, but don't have the critical eye, knowledge, or vocabulary for that matter to explain why. They just have a different feel to them, and the people look less alive and dynamic, and there's something about St. Ursula's hands that just don't look right. There are little details that just seem off. But we do have a nice little Easter egg. In the very right background of the martyrdom of St. Ursula painting, over Ursula's shoulder is a self-portrait of Caravaggio. That's what he looked like at this moment in 1610. He's a mess. He looks haggard and exhausted and extremely unwell. He looks worse than sick Bacchus after he got kicked by that horse. Remember he got kicked by a horse? God, there was so much in this story. Okay, so the breadcrumbs pick back up on July 9th, 1610, when Caravaggio got on a boat that was leaving Naples. He had three paintings with him, two of St. John the Baptist and one of Mary Magdalene, and he was headed back to Rome. Stories differ on the specifics here, but Scipione Borghese either secured the papal pardon or was so close to securing it that Caravaggio was confident enough to head back to Rome. And given that he was still facing the Bando Capitale and the wrath of the Nuccia's family, I think it's safe to say a pardon was at least assured, if not already completed. The boat that he got on, though, wasn't headed directly to Rome. Its final destination was Porto Ercole, which is about 151 kilometers north up the coast. But the boat was first making a stop at the Palo Castle in present-day Ladispoli, which is only about 50 kilometers northwest of Rome. By landing in Palo, Caravaggio would be coming into the city from the north, which was counter to what would be expected when traveling to Rome from Naples. It was also a busy commercial port, so we could secure a horse and carriage in order to transport those three paintings, which were undoubtedly destined for Scipione Borghese as quid pro quo for the pardon. He is so close. He has his repayment for the pardon, and he lands at the Palo Castle and immediately gets into a goddamn fight. Caravaggio is 20 miles from Rome and freedom. Not that he deserves it, but, I mean, he was a product of his time. Nobody deserved a pardon for murder, but they were given out like candy. As soon as he got off the boat and before his belongings, including the paintings, could be offloaded, Caravaggio got into a brawl, was forcibly detained, and was put in jail. This is the most on-brand Caravaggio move, and the boat captain, he didn't want any part of what was happening, so he set back out to sea with Caravaggio's stuff and headed north to Porto Ercole. There's some evidence to suggest that the arrest was about mistaken identity or there were some paperwork issues and he just freaked out because this wasn't about the Nuccia's murder because Caravaggio was allowed to buy his way out of jail a few days later. But now he's screwed because the paintings he needed for the pardon were in Porto Ercole and he had to get there fast. This is incredibly stressful, tense, and taxing for someone who just had half of his face cut open and there's a strong likelihood he developed some sort of infection that his body was fighting. Caravaggio managed to find a boat, and the best estimate is July 16th or 17th, and he finally made it to shore at Porto Ercole again, best estimate, July 17th or 18th. But his life finally caught up with him. On July 18th, maybe July 19th, 1610, at the age of 38 years old, Michelangelo Marisi de Caravaggio died. And because we're still in that panicky plague time, to not let the body rot in the July sun and spread disease, he had to be buried quickly. And because Caravaggio was alone and had no family in the area to take possession of his body, he was buried in an unmarked grave in Porto Ercole. 
the greatest painter of his day and now considered one of the most important painters in the history of Western art. And it wouldn't be until centuries later that we'd have some sort of idea as to what caused Caravaggio's death, but we'll get to that in a few minutes. When word of Caravaggio's death reached Scipione Borghese, Costanza Colonna, Wignacore, everybody jumped to stake a claim on the paintings that he was chasing down, two of which mysteriously disappeared, and the other eventually landed in the Borghese art collection. The buzzards came out immediately, and it's not surprising, that's what this whole story was about. Caravaggio's art was really the only reason he was allowed to live the life he did. It was always going to be the only thing that mattered to these people after his death. And Caravaggio's story may have ended, but there was so much more to this whole thing than just him. There were so many other colorful characters, and I think we deserve some more closure. Dear sweet Chico, he became a professional artist, and he was known as Chico del Michelangelo, and he made a living but never really did anything to stand out and quickly disappeared into history. Orazio Gentileschi, the man with a temperament nobody could get along with, testicular trial defendant, and a man who couldn't write but then also maybe could write, and those confiscated letters may have been written by him, and he remembers writing something like that, but he didn't exactly write that thing in particular, but also he wrote that. He had a great career, but was far outclipsed by his daughter Artemisia Gentileschi. He died in London years later as the court painter to Charles I of England. Mario Minitti, he continued to live a peaceful life, was very successful and dressed with pizzazz until he died a rich man in his 60s. And Philippe Melandroni, the famous courtesan of Rome, she died of an unknown cause in 1618 after she made it up in the world and bought her own house. She did get out of the life that she was stuck in. And the portrait that Caravaggio painted Philippe would eventually be lost, destroyed in the bombings of World War II. And finally, and I don't know why I saved him for last, Honorio Longhi, abuser of meringue chefs, accomplished architect, strawberry blonde gang leader, imprisoner of his own brother, and aggressive horse rider throughout the narrow streets of the artist quarter, he eventually was allowed to return to Rome, which he did about a year or so after Caravaggio died, until five years later when he died of syphilis. Okay, so let's fast forward a bit. For centuries, there were varying theories about how Caravaggio died. The prevailing thought was syphilis exacerbated by sunstroke from the Naples, Palo, and Porto Ercole boat trips, but that's also known as an absolute guess. The only thing historians really knew was that it wasn't a violent death, which is the most shocking part of this story. But in 2010, Italian archaeologists unearthed 200 human skeletons from a Porto Ercole cemetery, an activity that's also known as grave robbing. Then a group of scientists used carbon dating to narrow down the age range and skeletal structures to narrow down the gender and identified remains of men who died in their 30s. They then took DNA samples from known descendants of the Marisi family who were still living in Caravaggio. And apparently you're never going to be 100% certain, especially with DNA that's this old because of uh, degradation of the samples. But scientists ran two tests on the bones, a quote, non-specific metagenomic method and specific quantitative PRC method. And they also conducted a metaproteomic analysis of the skeleton's teeth. And I'm sorry, if I had to read all about this, you're going to have to hear about it. I don't want to be the only person who had their commute to work get ruined. They found with an 85% DNA match, someone that happened to be the same age and height. It's probably Caravaggio. 
and this giant team of scientists? There were seven of them. You know what? I'm just going to shout them all out. Michelle Drancourt, Elisabetta Chili, Giorgio Gruppioni, Alda Bazage, Giuseppe Cornaglia, and Didier Raoult. Nice work. They published their findings on November 1st, 2018 in the Lancet Journal for Infectious Diseases, Volume 18, Issue 11, page 1178. Nerd alert! The scientists determined that not only did they feel uncomfortable in most social interactions and have a hard time relating to why most people do the things that they do, but if this is indeed the remains of Caravaggio, he died of sepsis, most likely from the attack by Rodamonte Roero. His bones also contained an excessive amount of lead, which can cause extreme irritability, something that had to have contributed to Caravaggio being an absolute asshole, which is what he really died of. If anyone asks me how Caravaggio died, I'm going to say he died the same way he lived, being an asshole. And it was his behavior, life choices, it all led to the art that he created and his ability to tap into the best and the worst of humanity and put it on canvas in a way that nobody had seen before. Love his art or hate it, it changed Western art forever. And having your paintings as altarpieces in Rome's greatest cathedrals, it didn't just inspire the everyday person and tourist in the city, but it put Caravaggio's style and technique in front of the eyes of every artist who traveled through. And because he painted oil on canvas and not frescoes like most other people, it meant his smaller paintings could be seen by artists all over Europe outside of the churches because they were mobile. A few paintings in particular would have a significant influence on artists in the Netherlands. The Dutch artist Peter Paul Rubens, who was awed by Caravaggio's work when he was younger and visited Rome, he became an important broker for Caravaggio paintings that were on the private market and ensured they were purchased by Dutch buyers. Over time, the Madonna of the Rosary and also the Death of the Virgin, the painting that was rejected before the Nuccia's murder, they were brokered for purchase by Peter Paul Rubens. Caravaggio's art became so well-known, respected, and copied in the Netherlands that a number of Catholic artists in the city of Utrecht became known as the Utrecht Caravaggisti. His paintings were also on display all over the place in Spanish-controlled areas of present-day Italy, painted while on the run from the Nuccia's murder and his prison escape, which influenced Spanish painters. It was because he was on the run from murder and then from the Knights of Malta that Caravaggio's art had so much widespread exposure. So it was during this crazy period in the beginning of the 17th century that art finally found its next movement, its escape from the perfection of the Renaissance. When nobody knew how art could possibly move forward, it was the imperfection and the humanism of Caravaggio, a catastrophe of a human being, that changed the direction of art. In that direction, it started to crystallize when artists began to combine Caravaggio's techniques, his tenebrous lighting, his realistic depictions of people, with that emerging celebratory ornateness of an increasingly wealthy church, as well as a wealthy secular Europe. In this weird milkshake, this was the beginning of what would eventually be called the Baroque period. And the Baroque period also developed its own separate music, architecture, interior design, furniture, jewelry, and I don't know much about the Baroque period, except that people got a little out of control with the opulence, especially the church. The Baroque period appears to be one of the more gaudier moments in human history. Just Google Baroque cathedral interior. The Catholic church fell off that wagon and got back on the... <laughs> 
Mm-mm-mm. But that's not Caravaggio. That's not our story. There was nothing ornate or opulent about him. So while he's Baroque because he's definitely not Renaissance or awful mannerist, he was really more of a proto-Baroque, transitioning art from the Renaissance to the Baroque period. And it was an absolutely bonkers ride finding out how and why that happened. I hope everybody had a blast with this series. Thank you so much for seeing it through to the end with me. This one was... This was pretty wild. I feel like we learned a lot of weird stuff. So, the next series, for anyone who's still on board for another ride, uh, I started in on one of the biographies, but we also have a lot of primary sources. We're going to hear a lot directly from the artists, and not all of what we hear is going to be true. But the parts that aren't true, and digging into the reasons why events and memories did or didn't happen are equally as important to explore who this person was, the art that was created, and what it all means. In this series, it, it felt big. There were armies and battles and dynasties and nations were being built. And the next series will have some of that. We're going to be in a place and time of radical change and upheaval and the emergence of a national and cultural identity. And our story is going to be at the epicenter of all of it. But I was going through a lot of the reading and it's going to feel a little bit different. It's going to be much more emotionally intimate. It's going to be... It's going to be kind of intense. I'm actually a little bit nervous about the next series, but I think that's a good thing. It's a polite reminder that I still have no idea what the hell I'm talking about. So until next time, uh, stay subscribed. Uh, Instagram is at Artles Podcast. I guess both of those places you can get the notice when the series is going to kick off. And I don't have an estimate on when that's going to be, but I'm into the books and I can't wait to pick back up with another story. Until then, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for telling other people about the show, too. It's cool to see it grow organically like this. And for the reviews and the ratings, thank you so much. It's a huge help in turning this into something that people will take seriously, even though, I don't know, the jury's still out on how good of an idea that is. So that's it. Thank you so much. Take care, everybody, and I will talk to you soon.